Okay, welcome back to the Scaling Therapy Practice. If this is your first time or your returning time, I really appreciate you joining us for a conversation. Uh, this is James Marland with Dr. David Hall. Hello, David. Hey, James. This week, we're going to be talking about niches and the specific niche is uh, uh, addiction and addiction niching. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about a tool, tip, or tech of the week. Uh, David, how about you go first? Uh, you know, it's a podcast episode. It will often be for me. But uh, The Art of Online Business with Rick Mulready. Uh, it's a, one I regularly listen to. Rick has a lot of great conversations he has with people or just solo episodes, things he unpacks. Um, I appreciate I appreciate just how he does it, his mindset. There's not a lot of posturing, I find, which is a, a thing I like for business people. Some people have a lot more posturing and talking about how great it is. Rick's one of those guys that will talk about his mistakes, like not like past mistakes, even like, like, hey, these are some things this year that I should have done differently. And I appreciate hearing that. But it's uh, episode uh, 674. It, it's uh, titled Six Mind-Blowing AI Tools That Will Save You a Ton of Time. And this came out fairly recently. This was just in um, beginning of February, I think it came out. And of 2023 and you know what that looks like uh in the you know james and i were talking before we started recording of ai is going to be in everything and uh so yeah but i've just found i'm, I'm not even finished the episode yet uh but just the things that have already kind of come up and uh, james has talked about in recent episodes his recent experimentation with i, AI, I know so. i i keep talking about ai it's so mind-blowing though what you can yeah. do with yeah. just a couple prompts yeah. Uh, what's yours? Uh, tip. Sure. James. Uh, finishing up the, uh, the, the art of online business. I, that inspired me to create a mini course on, uh, things you can do with AI. So, uh, by the time you listen to this episode, I'm going to have an episode on creating a quiz with AI mm -hmm. from books. You, you can create a quiz with AI on a book. You, you're not feeding it anything. You just say, tell me about this book and give me some questions from this book. And if it knows the book, it will give you questions on a quiz. So quizzes, emails, outlines, scripts for podcasts, scripts for YouTube videos. Uh, I'm going to have some resources on how you can start using that right away. So uh, I'm super I'm, excited about AI. I'm glad I'm not dealing with the temptation as a student for this because the temptation to say like write me a summary of this book report i have due anyway ai anyway, sorry AI. If, I, if you just listened to my episode with daniel i talked about ai with him too a couple couple weeks ago all right so it's going to be everywhere though it's going to be injected into your search engines your excel mm -hmm. spreadsheets your note-taking devices It'll be it's interesting when people find out, James, that ne neither you nor I are real people, but we're actually AI <laughs> manifestations. We'll we'll leave it for people to figure that out. Which yep. which is the real James, you know? So yep. all right, all right, all right. So my my tip uh, is just something I've been struggling with because I'm trying to release some courses, and you know, I was developing this new mini course, and my goal was to have it released on Monday. And it's not released now. And so I've been struggling with feelings about guilt, you know, guilty feelings where 
if I'm if I'm working or if I work late into the night and maybe I push back dinner or I don't go downstairs to spend some time with the family, like I feel guilty about about that. And then when I'm with the family, you know, I take some time out to watch TV. I feel guilty about having all this work that I said I was going to I made goals for myself and I said I was going to be done and then I'm not done. And so now I have this like turmoil inside of me and I can't enjoy or I struggle to enjoy work and and uh, I struggle to enjoy some you know family time and I guess my tip about that and and is just finding realistic uh, balance for for work having realistic thoughts about work-life balance and capturing my negative thoughts and really reframing it and turning it into you know you do deserve to have a good family life you do deserve to take time off it's okay to say no it's okay to and it's also okay to have some extra focused work time like i don't have to have these guilty feelings back and forth but i've just been working on reframing my my thoughts around work this week especially with Mm -hmm. deadlines like on normal weeks i don't think it would be this bad but when i impose deadlines and have goals and then i see like i missed this goal and then i readjust and I miss this goal, it makes it it makes um mm-hmm. makes some of those thoughts come up more and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we were going to talk about some niches today. There are different niches in this idea of like niches of population, niches of method. Like so population niche would be I work with children or I work with uh veterans or I work with, you know, that's the, the population. They're niches of procedure, I would say, or, or the, the method, which is I do emotion focused therapy, or I'm a hypnotherapist, or I'm EMDR trained, that's a method. And that the method becomes the niche. And then there's the niche of problems. So it's alliteration, because we like alliteration. And I love alliteration. Yeah, oh, I did. I did a webinar on this uh, once, but the idea of like, okay, it's the, the niche is the problem. So it's either the the population, the procedure, or the problem. So the problem would be I work with, uh, you know, people struggling with panic disorder, or I work with uh, depression, or I work with, and sometimes they can overlap. Sometimes, in some ways, the population and the uh, problem or the procedure, like sometimes overlaps because, and sometimes it could be all of them. And this is what we're going to talk about today is one that's overlap, which is addiction work. That is both a population. Um, but it is also a, those who struggle with addiction have certain demographic aspects to them, uh, that, that become pretty, uh, widely talked about in, in the industry in general. And then there's different procedures that are common with it. And so anyway, but so, yeah, James, so just you, to you get, some, just, yeah, well, just to get started to set up the topic, uh, briefly, uh, why, why would somebody want to have a niche? And then secondly, why would somebody want to? niche into um addiction you want to have a niche because uh in building and growing and scaling a practice niches help Uh, there's the expression the riches are in niches and it is true it's really hard to develop a, a reputation in your work as a generalist it's the I mean, I, I don't want to say that in absolutes, like if you're in a small community and you know, your specialization could be like, I'm the therapist in town or I'm the, yeah. but, but if you're dealing with, you know, meaningful competition, then it's thinking through 
or just other options that people have when they seek out therapy. It's figuring out like, who am I offering to? Like, who's this for? Mm -hmm. Which, which is one of the big questions people come to when they come to your website or they read yeah. your marketing. Is this, can this person help me? Is this person for me? And they're yeah. going to be looking for their, their, yeah. their population problem or procedure. Yeah. They're going to be answering, you know, they're, they're going to be looking to answer those questions. Yeah. And so it's good to have it. And like, and a niche isn't uh, singular. I have a few niches I work in and I take breaks from certain ones. There are certain ones that I've had niched <laughs> work in that I'll take sometimes long. like I, um, at some points in my career, I worked a lot with adolescents mm. and I still do a little work. I think I've got one teenager that I actively see right now, but I've really scaled that back. And some of it is I'm in a different phase of career in life. Uh, I'm seeing different sorts of, I have different niches now than I did 10 years ago. And so it's not singular, but it, you do have to think about like, where am I focusing, focusing my, my mental energy, focusing my resources in getting better at whether it's seeking out training or certifications or just the, the time to put in to get good at stuff. Yeah. There's the 10,000 hour rule that to become a true expert at something you need to have 10,000 hours of doing it. And, you know, there's the general 10,000 hours you can have as a therapist. And my caveat for early career people in this, it's not that you cannot do good work earlier. It's that to, to be at a place of, of true, like mastery expertise takes 10,000 hours. Mm. And you can't really shortcut that, but you want to do it because it's a great niche or you want to do it because it's or a, a niche is a great niche. You know, you want to do it because it's a great way to define your practice and define your services in ways that connects you most ideally with your ideal client. Yeah. How, how I, how I kind of look at it like this is, um, if you're serving everyone, you're serving no one, you know, mm -hmm. you can't, you can't serve everyone. And you, you're, you really want to work with the clients uh, that you can help, you know, and that you like working with and that you're, you're good at it. And so who are those type of people when you look at like the problem in the niches? So you have a population and then you might have a problem that you're really good at solving or just your experience, your education, um, the, the things you've learned over time. And so then instead of, and I, I guess I'm thinking about it like a marketer. You want to invite those people. <laughs> you know, how do I communicate to those people that I am the right person for them? And so you start identifying with that. And that's, you know, like you segment into your niche. So I like to talk, think about selling and marketing as sort of inviting people. I'm inviting the best people on this journey where I know I can take them and get them results. And, and that's a, it's a free, I find it freeing. I actually find it freeing to have a niche rather than, than like, oh, I serve everybody everywhere. Like, like that just seems too, too much to handle for mm -hmm. me. Absolutely. All right. So, so now going down a little deeper, what makes uh, addiction, addiction counseling a, a nice niche that somebody would want to pursue? There's a lot of demand for one. Mm -hmm. And so let's unpacking, you know, what addiction work is. So traditionally, it was addiction work has been talked about in substance use addiction. Mm -hmm. 
alcohol, other sorts of drugs or substances. Uh, it's expanded quite a bit over the past few decades. Um, sex addiction has probably been the most visible one, but um, food addiction, video game addiction, mm -hmm. uh, gambling addiction, gambling addiction is is diagnosable where other other addictions aren't in the same way as substance use or, or gambling. Um, is there a is there a phone addiction yet? Is there a uh, that would be a technology addiction? And there's a technology like, addiction. I, I'm I, wondering. I became aware about ten years ago, and it still exists. There's a there's a program in Washington State called Restart, and they focus on specifically video game addiction. Oh, and that That's is a their clever name for a video game addiction. Yeah. And it's you know technology addiction is is becoming more and more of a thing. I. I teach on social media and the, the social dynamics of technology and uh, it's designed to be, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, process you can go down, a rabbit hole you can go down in that of, of, of how technology works on us to increase that addictive sort of response. But the two main categories people will talk about addiction, there's, there's substance driven addiction okay. and then there's process addiction or behavioral addiction, but, but the most like in the in the teaching and literature, the most common term for behavioral addiction is more process addiction, but you're addicted to the process. And basically anything outside of traditional substance abuse addictions will, will fall into that. Uh, though I am curious about food addiction because food, food is a substance, but I, it's used, that's usually treated in the process addiction thing. So that's what it is. But people who deal with um, compulsivity, uh, towards those activities or behaviors or substances in ways that are detrimental to their um, their higher value systems, the functionality of their life, their physical health. Um, it, it, it is kind of a, a, a hijacking process of they, they, they find themselves doing what they ultimately wish they would not do and other people in their lives wish that they would not do. But it, but it's, it serves a function, right? Like their addiction serves a function in their life. It does. And that gets into kind of the whole philosophy of the process of how to work with addiction. And, and there are a lot of emergent models in it. Um, in recent years, looking at different trauma models have become much more prominent. And I think have shed some very important light on the process of what, what leads person A to become an addict where person B does not. Because that is an important thing to not all people become addicts equally. It's not just the issue of substance. Uh, in my grandparents' generation, particularly when they were younger, most people smoked. Mm. And there was a, a, a period where a large portion of people quit smoking, uh, of where there was a lot more um, kind of public awareness being put into the energy of the, the negative effects of smoking, a lot more uh, it became a lot less socially acceptable. And so like my, I think of my grandmother, she smoked for a time in, in her adulthood, but she quit before I was even born. And most of her friends had smoked and most of them had quit, but there are people that don't. And they're, they're, you'll, you'll meet people that, you know, try to quit over and over. And a lot of people who drink alcohol drink in moderation. And there's some people that, can't or they reach a certain point they can't i have a good friend who started dealing with alcohol dependency late in life he had a, he didn't have a really dysfunctional relationship with alcohol until he reached his 50s 
And the way he describes it was, he goes, I feel somebody opened up the valve and broke off the handle. Mm. And it just, yeah. And so there's, um, there's physiological aspects of addiction, but there's also aspects of how people, early childhood experiences, um, any number of things that would do that. But addiction does, you know, whatever you're doing, it's, it's a way to feel different. It's a way yeah. to either escape or to indulge or, or what, but it's a, it's a, it creates a, an emotional response. And so, so it's, it sounds like to the point of why should somebody consider a niche in addiction? Like there's a lot of demand, like the demand hasn't gone down. It has, there are a lot more things. Addiction presents itself in, in many more ways in our society. There's a big demand. It's, it oftentimes very, um, persistent as an issue. Mm. Uh, there, there's some pushback. There's a lot of things that are talked about in the models driven by Alcoholics Anonymous AA and disease model of addiction, which I think there's some critiques of that that are, that are justified in critiquing of, but an expression that in AA is often once an addict, always an addict or, or kind of, and some people buy that, some people don't. It, it does seem to be very persistent where, you know, there's certain things that people may struggle with that are very uh, transitory that aren't necessarily lifelong, very persistent. There are other things that are. And addiction of its various sorts for a lot of people ends up being persistent. So there's a there's a demand for it. Um, it's very costly, addiction. Uh, I live in a very uh, conservative state in a lot of ways. And, and so like funding for state programs is, is a political diff politically difficult thing at times. Mm-hmm. But there's a state senator who he was at a, a a psychotherapy conference I was a part of a few years ago, and I got to know him. And he he's, you know, a conservative politically person from a, representing a very conservative constituency. But he was a major advocate for investing in addiction treatment. And he talked about he crunched the numbers of how expensive addiction treatment or addiction is for the community. Because he talked about just the numbers of shoplifting, because yeah. how a lot of people will end up particularly in desperate addiction. What are the things that are common done? Shoplifting is one of them. And talking about the expense of shoplifting to the state, not just the the merchants and things like that that are affected by shoplifting, but typically what happens. So let's say James, you're struggling with addiction, and to to feed that addiction, you go shoplift a crock pot from Bed Bath and Beyond. Okay. Uh, I don't think that would be an easy thing to shop list, but let's just, just say, for example. Say I'm really clever. Really clever that you manage that. And I don't know how much a crock pot is, but let's say a crock pot is $100. People okay. listening to this be like, oh my gosh, that's really expensive. That's right. I, I, just it's to, a really nice crock pot. Yeah. You know, and Bath no, and Beyond, I, they, they mark their stuff up. So Yeah. Let's say it's a $100 crock pot for the sake sure. of it. You know. Um, you take the crock pot. Well, you can't do much with this crock pot. Well, how typically shoplifting affects is then people return it mm. and you get kind of a cash sort of thing. And th there are limits in it. You know, they'll take down information. I lost their seat. Da -da -da, take it to a different look, take it to a different store that sells some of sort of crock pot. But here's what happens when a refund's given, regardless of how refunds are given. Let's say they only refund you store credit or whatever. When a thing is refunded, it's not just the purchase price that is refunded. The other thing that's refunded is sales tax. So uh, I don't know if, so I, I, in Tennessee where I live, there's no state income tax, but we do have sales tax. 
So if the sales tax is refunded, what that means is it's it's not there was the the sale was never made in the first place. And so the sale is being refunded off funds that were never there. And so basically uh, what the state senator was talking about, Briggs, uh, Senator Briggs uh, is his name, but was talking about the several billion dollars that this cost the state of Tennessee, not just in lost revenue, but money they're paying out in fraudulent sales tax refund. Yeah. And if it's billion dollars for the, the state, yeah. it's hundreds of billions of dollars for the companies. And so his argument was, is like, this is costing us money. This is a public yeah. health thing. So anyway, that's just an interesting thing I wanted to kind of get off on. But it is... Um, this keeps people, addiction, deep addiction, keeps people from functioning in their lives, keeps people from functioning in their jobs, in their relationships. Yeah. Um, I've worked, historically, I've done a lot of like young adult addiction work. And these are, you know, they're not launching. These are, you know, college students or young adults that can't live independently, that can't hold on a job. This has negative consequences on their families, on, on themselves, of course, but on their families, on society as a whole. And so because of that, addiction is a big industry. And the question of why people would want one, it's, a, it's, it's something that's identified very much. Um, there's a lot of employment options for it. And that kind of goes to one of the reasons to niche into this, that if you, uh, because there's a lot more in the way of uh, programmatic treatment in addiction, whether it's an outpatient, um, program, but it's not just individual counseling, but you're, you know, it's groups Great, in intensive yeah. outpatient programs or day treatment programs or residential programs. The job market for addiction is if, if you're interested in addiction work or open to be interested in addiction work, there's a lot of job opportunities because there's a big demand in it and there's structures to where people go and get addiction treatment and they need therapists in ways that are different. And a lot of these places are much more open to people that don't have independent licensure yet, which is a key thing. Okay. Because, not to get too lost in the weeds, but if I start an addiction treatment facility, I have to get that facility licensed. So that facility has a license. Mm -hmm. And that license is how insurance is billed. So it's not the license through of an the facility license. Through the facility, not the individual not the therapy license. Yes. Therapy. Okay. And so that allows for employment for people who are qualified by education, but don't necessarily have an independent license yet, that they can provide services that the facility can bill on. And so the, the model of um, pro programmatic treatment in that way allows for much more flexible employment for people versus if you're an outpatient office, that, that the billing is happening by provider. And if you're not independently licensed, you may not may not be able to bill in the same way, or there may be mm -hmm. um, preclusions in your state of how you can work and, and be employed. So that, that kind of segues to a little bit, like, do you need special degrees to become an addictions counselor? That is a great question. No, there okay. are degrees in it and there are uh, licensing and certification. In it. Most states have some level of certification or licensure for drug and alcohol providers. But it's usually a less, uh, I don't want to say less in that, like it's it's not worth as much, but it is, uh, it, it takes less educationally to get there. It's, it's less of a clearance bar. So for in Tennessee, where I am, they have what we call a LADAC, which is a licensed alcohol and drug addiction counselor. But that does not require a master's degree to get. It, it, it was something that was designed for people that have worked in the field 
and had, had gotten a lot of experience, but I don't even think you need a bachelor's degree to earn a layback. Okay. Now it limits your scope of practice and counseling, but if you have a degree in mental health counseling or marriage and family therapy or clinical social work, that's usually above and beyond um, the minimum for a lot of these places. Now, oftentimes they'll want you to, to know about addiction and most degrees have a certain amount of addiction coursework, but sure. you, you can be employable in a lot of places. They may want to train you once you're there, but uh, if you have a master's degree in a mental health discipline, um, but uh, but there are specific degrees in it. Um, there are a handful of states like North Carolina has a master's level license for addiction counselors, but um, that's more of the exception than the rule. Uh, but where this happens more is different certifications and programs that people go through. So there are um, there are different educational programs um, and different schools will run different things or different organizations will. When I got in to addiction work, began looking at it more, uh, which was a few years into my career. Uh, I ended up doing a low residency certificate program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It was a certificate program in substance use disorders. And that involved me traveling to Madison, Wisconsin for a few uh, weekend intensives for coursework. And there was uh, um, some papers that were done in additional reading and, um, and I ended up completing the certificate program. And that was just a way I did that for my own education to learn more about addiction. But the most common thing for master's level or higher therapists, if, if you really want to like get a credential, there's what's called a MAC, a master's of addiction counseling. Uh, and it's not a separate master's degree. Uh, there are two MACs actually. Uh, there's one run by the national board for certified counselors in BCC. And there's another one run by NADAC, uh, which uh, is the main, is one of the larger addiction counseling uh, organization. It's the, it used to, NADAC used to stand for the National Association for Alcohol and Drug Addiction Counselors, but now they're like KFC. Their name is actually NADAC, the Addiction <laughs> Association, because they do more than just alcohol and drugs in their addiction counseling. But both of those programs run comparable uh, certification programs, which involves a certain amount of post-master's experience in addiction-specific things and passing a national exam. But then this gives you this extra credential. But you don't have to work. You don't have to have these credentials to do addiction work. It is, for in most states, your license as a clinician, it, marriage and family therapist, mental health counselor, professional counselor, clinical social worker, psychologist, that will give you the right to do counseling, psychotherapy work with addiction. Now you want to make sure that you're skilled enough in it. And that may involve mm -hmm. taking some CE courses or doing an intensive or taking auditing a class, but, or getting some specialized supervision, but that's just a competency that you would make sense to, to seek out. So that's some of the, the education needed or, you know, how do you get into it without those types of things? But like when, when I've helped run, like I, I helped assist some, some, uh, groups that were, it was an IOP level, uh, mm -hmm. addictions group. And, you know, I don't, I don't have a master's in counseling, but I was like in the room assisting the master's degree person with like discussion questions and kind of managing the, the room. But just with my, and I was covering for somebody and it was just, uh, it was just, uh, 
it felt draining just doing it for like a week of covering somebody mm-hmm. just like their their life stories the problems they're going through um like sometimes i felt like i was being manipulated in ways i couldn't understand mm. uh with that that population and it uh it made me really respect the people who go into it mm-hmm. so what are some of the characteristics of somebody or the personality traits of somebody who would make a great addictions counselor good boundaries and good and and i'll I'll start with kind of something else this is a common trend for people that do addiction work not universally but a lot a lot of people who do addiction work are in their own recovery uh and part of it is is that they successfully navigated their recovery journey and they have Mm -hmm. a sense of gratitude in that and the sense of the transformation they've experienced and they oftentimes want to stay involved and that often leads them into the work and a common thing that is said is making sure you're working your own recovery well Mm -hmm. and that means a lot of different things depending on who says it in the context but the uh one of the more practical things I think about is, is you've got to have good boundaries that, um, I, I don't like necessarily talking about addicts in the way that, uh, sometimes it can get into a lot of those people. So right. yeah. I, I find that problematic, but there are people who, who live, who have a, a long stretch in addiction. Um, there's lots of things that, that they may have experienced developmentally. There are a lot of things they may have experienced mm-hmm. in their, their family of origin or what their childhood experiences were like. Uh, you talk about the manipulation that becomes, you know, oftentimes these represent people that they had to become good manipulators as when they were very young into, in order to survive and in, in their addiction and sometimes to maintain their addiction, manipulation became a skill set. And we typically, you know, the, the, the blades that get sharpened consistently end up staying the sharpest Mm -hmm. and it's easy to kind of go to. If, if you're a naturally charming person or you've developed a lot of charm, it's hard not to reach for that tool when you're trying to get something or when you're trying to, to navigate a social situation. I, I just remember um, we, watched, we watched a video or something, uh, some sort of training video in the class, and they were talking, of, it was this parent's experience of having to say no to their daughter about money or something over and over again because they kept um, lying. Mm-hmm. You know, they kept saying they would do something and not do something. And everybody around the room had some sort of story similar to that, mm-hmm. or they knew people like that or some something like that. And um, I, as a person who's generally trusting most of the time, I figured I, I could, I don't know if I, without training, I don't know if I could survive in this environment. There, There is, you know, the balance is, is- you want to have good boundaries. You don't want to be gullible on one yeah. side, but you don't want to be jaded either, which right. is, a, is a side effect of a lot of people I've seen that have done That's a long tension right there. It is. It that is. is that that takes a special person to to be to be caring and concerned, but also not gullible. I, I don't know if there's a technical term for that, but that 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 is a difficult tight tight mm-hmm. uh, high wire to manage. Yeah. So I would say that. You know, you need a lot of patience, you need good boundaries, but there's certain people that 
can manage, there, there's a part of addiction work that you're constantly managing a certain amount of chaos. Mm -hmm. And some of us have a higher toleration for that than others. Yeah. Some of us, yeah. some of us can thrive in it and, and not as a pathological statement for oneself. It's just more of some of us like, uh, uh, the, it brings a level of excitement and energy and we can, we can, they can handle that. some of the uncertainty. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're not easily flustered and you can, and, but in, there's an aspect too, if you spend some time in it, you know, you, you develop, don't necessarily judge, um, your long-term response of how you are in the first week. Mm. Uh, my first experience was I worked in a crisis stabilization hospital when I was still in grad school. It was, it was my practicum internship, uh, placement. And it was both psychiatric and substance. And so there was both being managed in that hospital. And uh, there were, I, I was um, a bit overwhelmed my first few weeks. Yeah. And I just kind of stayed with it. But by the time I reached the end of my year there, I was much more competent, competent and capable. Uh, so the experience and, really. Yeah. Helped. I, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's one of the things that particularly for people when they're fresh out of grad school and they're looking for both employment options and good place to collect hours, an addiction niche is amazing because there's mm -hmm. often what compared to a lot of other jobs can be very well-paying jobs. And uh, they can be, oftentimes they, they may include postgraduate supervision. And I know a lot of people that they did addiction work. It wasn't necessarily their long-term career path. But I think of one of uh, a friend of mine who he moved out, he graduated with his degree and took a job out in Utah, left East Tennessee, went to Utah to do a, um, it was this wilderness experiential addiction program and worked there for several years and got licensed and got a lot of great experience and was able to live someplace interesting. Since then he's moved back and, you know, has a, a solo practice and you know he his life is um different mm -hmm. uh, uh, in in that respect but the um but yeah it's a it's um it can be and having a niche i guess one of the things I want to highlight is you can have a niche it doesn't have to be your forever niche it's just like this is interesting enough mm -hmm. or there's enough of a need where i can see i can help people and this gives me a positive career pathway in this moment, you know, for to collecting postgraduate hours or making a, a reasonable income or whatever it looks like. Uh, and in scaling, and because this is a podcast about scaling, if you learn that industry, it's amazing how profitable that can be at the end. I've known people that have started and sold multiple treatment centers and their main asset was they understood addiction treatment. They understood how it worked client-wise, but they developed in the process of working in that industry, they developed skills on how to market, um, you know, what were the main referral bases for it, how to go through the facility licensure process. And so they've, you know, bought, they've started and sold multiple of them. And it's, it's you know, as a scaling lucrative sort of thing, there's a lot of growth in addiction treatment. Great. Uh, any Any final thoughts on that? My one thing, I guess, is just this idea of uh, interesting is sometimes good enough. I think sometimes I, I came into addiction work a little later 
there were certain niches I took on earlier in my career. I was licensed and had been working for a few years before I got into addiction. What got me into it was I had um, my family, uh, my I have family members that are in development. They do like property development, things like that. And they ended up investing in the startup process of a drug and alcohol treatment center. And I was not super keen at the beginning, but they, they saw an opportunity, they saw a need and, uh, they wanted to go for that. And then once, and then I got on board and then I thought, well, I'd like to contribute as I can to the startup process. So it makes sense for me to, to get more addiction training when that's when I did my certificate program, University of Wisconsin. And, uh, so I was, but I had resistance early on because I've, I've not gone through my own addiction journey. I've, I've. I'm in, and that's something, again, a lot of people that end up doing addiction work are in their own recovery. And that was not part of my journey. Um, I had my experience in before in crisis stabilization was there was a lot of chaos and I wasn't sure, like, did I like that? Did I, yeah. but I, I ended up coming to it with a fresh set of eyes and ended up appreciating it, appreciating it in different ways. And at this point, I don't do a lot of addiction work, but I feel pretty uh, capable in it. I, I supervise people that do a lot more of it and it's, it's people are in need. And ultimately most of us, I'd like to think got into this field of mental health to help people. Sure. And so part of it is, you know, niches often represent places of very acute distress and pain that people are going through and they need help. And so it's very worthy, but getting, exploring this niche or any niche doesn't involve signing a 30 year lease. It just, you know, so, Great. uh, yeah. So my one thing I want people to remember, I really liked how you described the, um, like the niches, the problem, the population or the procedure. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, if you have one, you're on your way. If you have two, like if you have a problem in a, a population or a population problem, like mm -hmm. you're, you're almost there to a niche. Mm -hmm. And if you have a special procedure or a mm -hmm. way on how you handle it, you're 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 almost all the way there to having such a great definition mm -hmm. of what you do that it would be hard for the right people to miss you. So mm -hmm. uh, have that po problem, population, and procedure defined and communicate it in your marketing and on your web page, and you yeah. will you will start start to be known as the person who does this. Yeah. You know, the center yeah. of this. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. And this is uh, James Marland with Dr. David Hall. We'll see you next time. Later. PsychMaven is proud to support the Scaling Therapy Practice podcast. And if you are someone looking for ideas that are tailored to your own personal style, on how to scale and grow your own impact and income as a mental health provider, we hope you might check out our free online assessment. If you go to stp.psychmaven.com, you can take our free personal inventory and find out what your builder type is as a helping professional. This assessment is quick and fun, and it comes with tons of customized resources with your results, so you can discover the best ways to scale that match your own personality. Find the assessment at stp.psychmaven.com. That is stp.psychmaven.com. Have fun with it.
Thank you for listening to the Scaling Therapy Practice. I hope you enjoyed the show. I want to remind you that the content shared today is for general information and entertainment purposes only. Opinions given should not be considered as legal or tax advice. If you need a professional advice in those areas, please consult with a licensed attorney or accountant. But thank you so much for listening. The Scaling Therapy Practice is part of the SciCraft Network.